put on your 3D glasses now. Have you seen Fred is Dead, The Final Nightmare? No. <laughs> where they have to defeat Fred <laughs> Why Krueger? Why would I have seen that? <laughs> Welcome to episode 150 of the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are... John Farben, Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, Andy Chandler. And I'm Hazel Chandler. That is right, it is episode 150 and to celebrate we're bringing back... We're bringing back some of our favourite games to play. So Dan is going to be taking on Andy in Nerd Court. Will Spider-Man No Way Home be sent to Nerd Jail? It is all down to the jury and one very unbiased judge. Plus, many hijinks will be had in our game of Buff or Bluff. We've been playing this since episode one, but can we work out the truth from our nerds' pack of lies? Find out as we start our 150th show. Uh, two, two things. Oh. Now, the, You'd like to totally, make a complaint. I'd like to already make an objection about this totally unbiased judge you referenced. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, would, would, you, the, would the judge be married to... Because if the judge is married to the defence, this does seem a little yeah. bit weighted in the favour of the defence. Given what's happened in Georgia this week, <laughs> how dare you impugn the honour of the judge? Completely impartial. Yeah, and I thought the Aren't judge... Aren't you fluffy buddy uh, kids? <laughs> <laughs> I thought the judge should be someone with maybe a little bit of law experience. Judge John? Yeah, but I am married to Dan, so... That's <laughs> true. <laughs> Have you told Amy yet? <laughs> okay, what's your second objection? My second objection was, would anybody know if we used the buffs and bluffs from episode one here, 150 episodes later, would we remember our first buffs and bluffs? Because I don't. No. no. I don't. Nope. Nope. Because we could just start recycling them at this point. <laughs> so I spent this morning writing one, and halfway through I realised I'd already done it. Oh. <laughs> I, I can't remember the two truths, but my lie was Fellowship of the Ring, Liv Tyler, when she pulls out the sword and says, come and claim him, she cuts her thigh <laughs> on the way through. She didn't. She's fine. She cut someone else's thigh. Yeah. But you can't use that one. Damn that, but that was mine. It yeah. was famous thigh cuts in movies. We've established now that you'll never know. I wonder how many facts we've done between us. If it's 150 episodes, 75 episodes of Buff of Bluff, average of four and a half people per episode <laughs> and three questions each time. Quite a lot. Yeah. That's nine times 75. 1.4 million. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Wow. About 600 something. I'm amazed there's any facts left. <laughs> and, yet, and yet, we go again. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody been up to anything exciting? No. No. <laughs> Nothing uh, at all. No. Uh, we did go and see Ray Fiennes playing Macbeth. Uh, how was he? He's very good. The more unhinged and mad that Macbeth got, the better Ray Fiennes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His final fight at the end was very, very good. Uh, is David Tennant doing Macbeth at the same time, more or There's less? one in Bristol at the same time, isn't there? Yeah. There is. Yeah. This one wasn't in a theatre. It was... Organised by Underbelly, who were one of the big oh, yeah. Edinburgh Fringe companies. Mm-hmm. And they're touring it in Edinburgh, Liverpool, London, and then Washington, D.C. But they set it in Edinburgh, at least at the Royal Highland Centre, which is like a big convention centre. So it was like you were in a fringe venue 
rather than a theatre, which gave mm. it a slightly different feel to mm. watching from a comfy seat. Tiered seating, so everyone had a good view. You could hear the rain pounding on the roof, and it wasn't a sound effect. It was just really rainy outside, but it <laughs> added to it. Um, yeah. And they could do a little bit more with the way in and out. So you walked through a burned-out landscape with a car on fire on your way to your seat. Hmm. Not like an immersive experience, yeah. but... Was that the Glasgow production? <laughs> let the people of Scotland know that I am not affiliated, associated, or in any way no, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to see Sir Ian McKellen in Hamlet next oh. month. He's in a new adaptation. Because um, I, I thought we'd, we were booking tickets to see the theatre show being streamed live to the cinema. But no, it's like a, a whole new idea based on the, 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 the original play. Is this like the one he did at the Fringe a couple of years ago with the ballet company? I think it's another another one. one. I didn't see any ballet in the trailer, but it looks like a proper film. But it's like behind the scenes of the stage show kind of thing. Though that could be like, have you noticed how the trailers for musicals, they quite often hide the fact it's a musical? Yeah. The Mean Girls Mm. one gave you no clue it was a musical. I think the Sweeney Todd one, where the entire film is musical. I don't think there's a spoken line in it, and they somehow managed to hide that in the trailer. (laughs) Saying that, I... Do know people who went to see the film of Les Mis not knowing it was a musical? Wow! Wow! Did they know by the end? I think they had a clue, <laughs> and uh, That's a matter of opinion, isn't po- it? posted opinions afterwards. Going, I had no idea this was a musical. Why were there so many songs in it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any favourite memories from the past one hundred and fifty episodes? No, nope. No, uh, I enjoyed the. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed the live one we did at the Improv mm. Festival. Mm. Which we may repeat this summer. Yes, yes. potentially, yes. yes in a at Spontaneous Rex Festival. Yes. Looking, looking forward to that. But I, I enjoyed having an audience laughing hilariously at my jokes. We had to pay them a lot, <laughs> yeah. you know. We've done some fun interviews with people, mm-hmm. both in our appearances at the other Nerdfest, and I got to chat to an author because of this yeah. podcast, which was mm-hmm. really fun. Andy, you, what? You, uh, <laughs> I'm not an author. <laughs> you, you, you got to stalk your future wife by listening to her thoughts of many, many films. I did, yeah. And honestly, it, it sent me down some wrong directions because uh, after listening to a few of the early episodes, I was convinced that Hazel had a thing for Bruce Willis. Yes, Bruce Willis looking like a dildo was a thing in like episode 11, yeah. I think. Oh, I think it was Thanos, Thanos yes. Thanos mm-hmm. looked like a Bruce Willis dildo. It made sense at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Still does. Um, there's surprisingly little Chris Hemsworth chat in the very early episodes. You managed to keep that suppressed. Well, sometimes you just want to share your fantasy with others. Sometimes you want to keep them for yourself, you know? Mm. I noticed we haven't mentioned him being in the boot of your car in an awful long time. <laughs> Wanted to climb him like a tree, I think, wasn't there? Something yeah, that's no, acceptable. He, he died. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> they just substitute him for a brother and they no put, one They put Liam in instead and nobody... Yeah. yeah, and now what they're having to do is put prosthetics on him for like new films like yeah. the, the like Furiosa. Oh. They know. didn't get that right for Infinity War. Weekend at Bernie style. <laughs> <laughs> I've always enjoyed our Oscars sweepstakes every yes. year, mm-hmm. uh, going throughout one. the 150 episodes. Yeah, I know that'll be coming up in a few episodes time. Yes. How many hats? That's the question. Mm. <sighs> Too many. 150 hats. Could do 150 hats. Yeah. Better gear with not getting a nod is ludicrous, but yeah. anyway. That's but didn't, by the by. didn't I hear there were three female directors nominated in the 10? 
three out of the ten Best Picture nominees uh, were directed by women. Yeah, there's um, only one female in the Best Director category. Is that the Anatomy of a Fall? Yes, direct. Justine Trier. Yes. Mm. But which is an incredible film, so mm. I'm very, very glad that's in there, but obviously we can't have more than one. <gasps> God, no. Is it still only about 14, 15% are directed by women? I don't know. It's a very Somebody small write one. in. Ideally, a man write in and explain to us <laughs> why in great detail. Yeah, but there was, there was a mistake, wasn't there, with the BBC feed? They originally had Margot Robbie as Best Actress. Yes, John and I were both following live feeds of the nominations yeah. and commenting on them as they and arrived. You were saying, I can't believe Emma Stone didn't get nominated for Poor Things. Poor Things. Uh, not because I've seen it or ever will, but because... <laughs> yeah. She seemed to be one of the front runners, and yeah. I was surprised at her not being there. And I was like, "When she is, she's there." <laughs> and they, yeah, I think the BBC got him wrong. I think, didn't they? Yes, they had listed Margot Robbie instead of mm-hmm. Emma Stone for about mm-hmm. five minutes, and then they changed it. And, and of course, if they'd only kept it as the mistake. Everyone would have been somewhat happier, happier on the internet yes. thereafter. Mm-hmm. But I am very pleased for America Ferrera as well. I still cry every time I watch that speech, um, and yeah, I'm very, very pleased for her, but. No Oscar nominations for Greta Gerwig or... Well, she, well she's got a best uh, adapted screenplay. She's got a be- yeah. just... And you can buy the screenplay in all good bookshops. We saw it in a bookshop yesterday. But still, like, it's adapted screenplay because like, it's a, it based on a doll, which was the, the thing it was kind of adapted from. But she still had no source material. She created yeah. that entirely from her head and no one else could have done that. And she gets you know, very, very little credit for mm-hmm. it. We'll get into depth into those films during our Oscars sweepstake in an upcoming episode. For now, let's get into it with our buff or bluff quiz. Who'd like to kick off the 150th incarnation of buff or bluff? I've got some 150 themed acts. Okay. Very good. Okay, which I will uh, try and remember from my phone. That's called reading, John. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Scott, <laughs> um, remember how to read first. <laughs> on my phone. <laughs> so, 150 facts. Not 150 <laughs> facts. about the number. Thank God for that. 150. <laughs> the oldest film listed as a film on the Internet Movie Database is 150 years old this year. It is called Passage of Venus, made in 1874. It's actually a series of still shots of the planet Venus, but when you run them together, it looks like it's the passage of the planet across the sky. And it was the first film to use kind of sequential photography, like taking photos in a row. So the precursor of the modern movie camera. Sounds ripe for a gritty reboot directed by Zack Snyder. (laughs) It does. (laughs) Number two is the film Poison Others. A comedy mockumentary starring Ralph Little was filmed in 2002, but was not released until 20 years later in 2022. The reason being that they ran out of money in post-production when they realised that throughout the entire film, they had used 150 as the highest score you can get in darts on all the screens and all the speeches and everything. And they lacked the money in post-production to change that to 180. (laughs) So the film lay on the shelf for 20 years. No way. What's the third one? (laughs) Uh, Just just as a formality. (laughs) In 2009, the film Cinematon appeared at a film festival. 
it's gone through various versions over the years, but the version that screened in 2009 at uh, various film festivals was 150 hours long. Static silent shots, each shot being 3 minutes and 25 seconds in length and consisting of an individual looking at or doing something in front of a camera. Famous participants include Ken Loach, Terry Gilliam and the seven-month-old baby. A famous famous seven-month-old baby baby who the director said was his favourite individual in the entire film. Yeah, was how long is that? Like four days? Is that the answer to defined self-indulgence? Yeah, it's about six days, I think, maybe six and a half days. There were, there's like an Andy Warhol movie that's the Empire State Building. Yeah. Yeah. But this is, yeah, it's just, it puts a camera in front of someone's face, films them for three minutes and 25 seconds, and they can do whatever they like in that time. Why three minutes 25? I have no idea. Does that divide into an hour? It's 205 seconds, I think. You know, a lot of maths already on this episode. Yeah. Mm. And it might just be that was the length of the first one that he did, and he decided that it had to be that length. Does 150 divide by th- 3 minutes 25 seconds? Have you worked that one out? I haven't done that, no, but I, I was told it was. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds like something arty that someone would do. Yeah, experimental. It's also too boring for John to make up, I think. It doesn't divide, by the way. I've got my calculator. <laughs> <laughs> 2,634.1463416. Margin of error, though, isn't it? Damn it, my lie is Um, revealed. Let's go back to the Ralph Little film. What's it called? Poison Arrow, which is the name of his character. And it's a a documentary, a mockumentary about a young person rising through the world of professional darts and winning the world championship. His name is Poison Arrow. Yes. It's like his nickname. Arrows meaning darts. Yes. And he's Mm -hmm. named after the song about shooting a poison arrow through my heart. I, I presume so. You've not seen it? I haven't seen it. No, like I say, it was it was it laid on a shelf for twenty years because they fucked up the numbering. They just thought it was one hundred and fifty. Yeah, and somehow got through like the production Even without anybody. Ralph Little starred in a comedy called uh, "Is It Two Pints of Lager and a yeah. Pack of the Crisps?" Set in a pub where he regularly played darts. Yeah, yeah. And even though it was only the audio, they had to change. <laughs> well, no, because the scoreboard. So, like, it's set, it's set <laughs> in a. They made special yeah. scoreboards uh, for the film. He hits like the three darts that shows 150 at the side during the tournament. Would they not have just used existing dartboards for props? Well, no, because they, they've got like. <laughs> have, you, have you ever seen professional darts? No. Right, so, <laughs> they, they, there's, so, professional darts have the big thing, and then they've got a big LCD screens at the side of the dartboard where they show a close up, and then they, they show the score. Of the three darts as they hit, and there's somebody... Oh, so the, those scores are not on the board? They're not no. on the board, no. Okay. So you would get a triple 20, which so, is 60, so... That's maths again. Yeah, so, you get three, so triple, yeah. Explain to me what they had to fix exactly. So they've got the, what, uh, what someone said, they've got what was shown on the display, what else is uh, that, that was the main thing, so they, had to, they would have had to overdub dialogue, they would have had to do some digital alterations on the... On the displays so at the, the side. The other problem is they'd actually have to make the score add up to 180 and not 150. Well, it did. That was the problem. So they, they got the pre triple 20s, uh-huh. which is 180, but on the, then they went, he's got 150. It's the highest score he's won. And it had like 150 flashing at the side. And uh-huh. uh, in post production, somebody looked at us and went, hang on. Yeah, but it's not advanced mathematics, is it? No, that's, what, that's how it's ridiculous. And, that nobody. And anyone that has heard of darts knows. 180. Yeah. And anyone who hasn't heard of darts knows how to count. Why would you make a film about darts if you didn't know that? 
I don't know. It's just, I, I think basically, I think maybe somebody made an error in the script, like so a type of the script. Is and it there just got any point upon. in discussing the other two? <laughs> I've, I've forgotten the, the first one. one. Yeah. The first one is the Passage of Venus. Oh yes, or Passo- oh. Passage mm. du the Venus. oldest film of all time. Yeah, oh, it's uh, yeah. So it's the first that is classed as a film. It's the oldest film listed on IMDb, and that was now, 150 years put, ago. Putting aside history of astronomy and when being able to photograph Venus became that easy. So it's, it's not, not as easy it, as Uranus. Hey. Hey. Um, it's not specifically being able to photograph that's when the moon's Venus. It's being able to photograph the movement of Venus to take a series right. of pictures. From Earth. So we're not talking high-res yeah. images of the planet. This is just Venus as seen from Earth. Yeah, and okay. showing its movement across the sky. Okay, that's that's more plausible. The only counter-argument to it being the darts one is the fact that number one and number three are kind of similar in that they're very very long shots of things well no I mean Passage of Venus I think it runs about a second in the, a couple of mm. seconds in oh, the right. so it's sequen- yeah sequential photographs I can see being uh-huh. a thing in the 1870s we're in the world of the Magic Lantern show and Zoe Tropes and yeah. that sort of mm-hmm. thing whether it's classed as a feature film could be where we've got the lie yeah a film not a feature film a film okay well, or just first thing IMDB counts yeah, yeah. Right, let's come to a decision. I'm going to go for number two. Number two. Obviously number two. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, but I might have that number wrong. Okay, yes, number two is the bluff. Um, (laughs) There's quite a lot of truth in there. Um, And there is a film called Poison Arrow starring Ralph Little. It did sit on a shelf for 20 years because they ran out of money, but they didn't run out of money because they got the number wrong for the darts because that's just ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It it really is. (laughs) The 150-hour film has continued to add to it since its premiere. It's now 207 hours long. Jesus. Mm. I mean, I like I like some arty shit, but um, I thought you would have bunked yourself into a fourth just over the thought of two hundred seven no. hours of silent static shots. <laughs> That's several arty steps beyond me. I'm afraid can't, can't subtitle silence. Oh, that's deep, man. Thank you. Well, mm-hmm. before I do my buffer bluff, mm-hmm. I have a question for all of you. Okay, what if the Nerdfest podcast never happened? <gasps> Be much happier. <laughs> Just just kidding. We'd already be in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd be having the same conversation without recording it, probably. Yeah. Yeah, so I have, based on the hypothetical, mm-hmm. three of Marvel Comics' weirdest what-ifs. Mm-hmm. So before it was an animated show, What If has been a series of comics going, I think, all the way back to the 70s. And every so often they come up with some quite strange ones. Number one, what if Daredevil had a dishonest tailor? (laughs) Um, In this comic, everyone is aware that Daredevil is a blind superhero, including the person who makes his costumes. He turns up to fight Kingpin and Punisher in a snazzy checkered suit, and the villains just laugh in his face and mock him for it. Excellent. Um, He's slightly disabled. (laughs) What year was that again? Uh, This is closer to the 70s than now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Couldn't tell you an exact date. Because you made it up. Number two. What if... Sheep Boy. <laughs> uh, in this comic, Peter Parker was bitten not by a spider, but a radioactive sheep. <laughs> he becomes Sheep Boy. Not a crime fighter, just a happy little half-sheep, half-boy grazing away in his field. That doesn't sound very exciting. No. Sounds quite bad to me. <laughs> <laughs> are you trying to pull the wool over our eyes? Oh, <sighs> 
You wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> Look what you've done, Dan. <laughs> Just ram those puns home. Hey. 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 Uh, number three. What if Elvis led the Fantastic Four? <laughs> uh, uh-huh. in, in this comic, Reed Richards never joins Johnny, Sue, and Ben on their fateful trip to space. Instead, they have a celebrity guest, Elvis. The new Mr. Fantastic takes his famous dance moves to the next level now that his body can stretch like nobody else's. <laughs> wow. You can imagine that kind of hip swinging, swaying. The old Elvis, Elvis the 50-foot pelvis. <laughs> yeah. So is it Daredevil's dishonest Taylor, Sheep Boy, or Elvis in the Fantastic Four? Kind of know which one I want to see. Yeah. Does Sheep Boy have any exciting adventures or do you just sit in a field? Just eat some grass. <laughs> And, and they stretch that out to how many comics? I, I think all the what-ifs are just one. Mm-hmm. I think they're either single issues or part of a single issue. Can he converse with his fellow sheep? He's half sheep, so mm-hmm. probably, but he's got a human face. Has he got... Oh. He's half sheep, half boy. Oh, I missed dear. that. Yeah. So, not quite sheep enough for sheep, not quite boy enough for boys. I guess. <laughs> And I must stress, I haven't read any of these. I yeah. looked them up on uh, just, CBR.com, who has a full list of the weirdest what-ifs. So, and just discarded by his Aunt May. She's like, no, I can't look at you. Go and live in a field. Cheap boy. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to... She lives in Queens. She hasn't I'm got the space. I'm going to say, Paul, there's, no, there's very little grazing space for poor sheep boy in New York, is there? Yeah, I'm trying to raise the stakes. I'm kind of like, oh, cheap mm. boy being cast out from the city that he knows and abandoned mm. by those that he loves. Will he ever make it back to New York? Find out next week. He, he got some grass, he's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you haven't actually read the comic, it would explain why you worry about some of the details. <gasps> Sounds like he isn't the only one who's had some grass. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and certainly the writers of that episode. Now, I haven't seen Morbius, but Good. would you have preferred that they'd made Sheep Boy instead? Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> Dishonest Taylor is... That's quite plausible. Yeah, it's a comic. It's, it's a visual idea. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of mean, um, but for the 70s or near 70s era, yeah, see that happening. None of them stand out as being especially more ludicrous or more believable than the others. <laughs> I have vague memories of hearing about the Elvis one. I, that's the one I'm leaning to, because I think like Dan would have fun making that one up. I'm heading towards Sheep Boy because mm. I just don't see how that's a comic unless something exciting, unless there's some exciting incident where like someone tries to shear him. <laughs> Sheep Boy. Elvis. Sheep Boy. <laughs> Hazel is correct. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, can confirm what if Sheep Boy does exist? Here, I'm going to show you all the picture of Sheep Boy. Oh, wow. And that looks like. Oh, that's horrifying. That's a sex thing, isn't it? (laughs) It's looking Um, sheepish. Yeah, so one of uh, my other favourite Spider-Man what-ifs I read about was, what if the spider had been bitten by a radioactive human? (laughs) Right. Uh, Which is the story of regular teenage spider Webster Weaver, who got bitten by a radioactive human and gained superpowers. (laughs) There was also a what if Aunt May got bitten by the spider. Mm -hmm. Uh, Daredevil's Dishonest Tailor, that that happened. I'm going to show you that. Oh, that's mean. That is really mean. We all share these on our uh, yeah. <laughs> on our socials. Yes, but uh, sadly, Elvis never led the Fantastic Four. Oh. But there have been some related what-ifs. There was what if the Fantastic Four was led by Keith Richards instead of Reed Richards. 
<laughs> um, where they form a rock band. Excellent. How many drugs are in that then? Now I imagine. Well, seventies. Yeah, 70s. yeah mm. it, it's very difficult to imagine them doing anything other than taking massive, massive amounts of cocaine. And we have also had "What If the Thing Was an Elvis Impersonator." Maybe it was rock music. Yeah. It, uh, the the thing, the king, I guess maybe. But they ran out of ideas at some point with this series, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I haven't seen the whole series, but I enjoyed the one that was basically Die Hard with the Avengers. That was fun. Hmm. Who, who's going to top Sheep Boy? I can go next if you want. If you want to top Sheep Boy. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about three... Don't Google it, Dan. <laughs> three very, very high, high quality 1970s sports films. Of course. So, number one is Matilda from 1978. A washed-up British boxer travels to America with a boxing kangaroo named Matilda, whom he exhibits as a carnival sideshow with the help of a small-time talent promoter. One day, the world heavyweight champion happens to attend the carnival where he takes on Matilda to impress his girlfriend, but gets knocked out by a single punch. Thus begins Matilda's professional boxing career, culminating in a Rocky-style title fight showdown <laughs> with the vengeful champion from the carnival. Who stars in this? Elliot Gould. Oh, as the kangaroo. No, um, the kangaroo is uh, a man in an obviously cheaply made suit. Uh, Elliot Gould plays the talent agent. Or does he? (laughs) Number two. The fish that saved Pittsburgh, 1979. The Pittsburgh Pythons are a struggling basketball team on a huge losing streak, but a towel boy named Tyrone has a plan to turn their fortunes around. Astrology! He seeks out the help of professional astrologer Mona Mondieu, and they devise the bulletproof, totally sensible strategy of assembling a team entirely of players with the same star sign. Naturally, (laughs) and because astrology is totally legit, you guys, and not at all complete bollocks, the team immediately starts a winning run. You would say that was a Pisces. (laughs) Well, Pisces is is relevant. Uh, They start a winning run, takes them to the championship finals, and the team is subsequently renamed the Pittsburgh Pisces. Hence... Fish. See, it all makes sense. And number three is The Right Arm of God, 1975. Ira Goldberg lives in New York City, loves bodybuilding, and has a strained relationship with his rabbi father, who is disappointed that he didn't follow in his footsteps. When his father suddenly dies, Ira enrolls in the Jewish Theological Seminary to honour his memory, but the school is suffering from financial difficulties and may close if it can't raise $100,000. So Ira enters the Tri-State Arm Wrestling Competition, which coincidentally has just that amount as a cash prize. But he faces stiff competition in the form of Brett Crusher Lazenby, a muscle-bound bully representing the local Baptist megachurch. (laughs) Ira must summon all of his strength and faith to save the seminary and make his father proud from beyond the grave. Save the ceremony with his father, who's a rabbi, did you say? Yeah. That last one doesn't sound kosher to me. (laughs) No. Isn't this the plot of Dodgeball? Save something and the cash prize is exactly the amount that he needs. That's just the plot of sports movies. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. true. Good point. Is Boxing Matilda some kind of riff on Waltzing Matilda? Waltzing Matilda is a song that Andy plays regularly on the piano. Okay. Not quite correct. I play Tom Traubert's Blues, uh, Three Sheets to the Wind in Copenhagen, which is a Tom Waits song, um, but it does Why riff do on Waltzing Matilda. Why do you keep singing Waltzing Matilda? Well, those are, those are the lyrics of the, um, 
Those are the lyrics of the chorus. Um, but so the, there is a song that has the same tune of Waltz and Matilda, no. and then the mix of Waltz and Matilda, so but the song is not job. Waltz and Matilda. No, we're getting off topic here. <laughs> well, Talk we're, about we're kangaroos. Not because this, this all seems relevant yeah. to whether yeah. you might have made up a boxing film with someone called Matilda in it, but maybe... Mm. 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 I am aware of the existence of one of these films. Okay. Only one. Only one of them. I'm doing well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think Peter, you might be aware of the same one. I'm not. You're actually. not. Hmm. You were in one of them. Me. Don't think so. You win the costume. I mean, if it's, <laughs> if it's boxing Helena, I would. <laughs> the last one, you know, they, they they make these sort of films, don't they? And they're made by the church or something like that, oh, and yeah. they, they mm. do surprisingly well. They used to way back in the day used to do like like on road shows and things like that, on driving theaters. You would get your your Christian movie. Mm-hmm. Andy explained that one in enough detail. You'd have had to spend a long time making that one up. The second one went into a lot of detail, but none of that detail sounded in the least bit <laughs> plausible. In the second one, uh, the astrologer Mona Mondia is played by Stockard Channing. Ooh. Of oh, Greece fame. And West Wing fame. That's mm-hmm. the kind of name a Stockard Channing character should have. I like the title. I could see her playing a character called Mona Mondrian. What year was it? 1979. That's after Greece. Before Matilda, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's early 90s. At any point in the Matilda movie, does a kangaroo sing about what it wants to do when it grows up whilst on a swing, (laughs) making the audience cry? No, that's silly. It's a kangaroo. It doesn't sing. It does, however, wear clothes. What kind of clothes? Um, Describe them. A boxing robe. Oh, okay. And it's got gloves on, of course. Gloves. Yeah. And presumably at some point it gets big headed about its success and wears sunglasses and a big fur coat. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this is conjecture. Are we going to take this to the next level and provide photographic evidence using AI for the things that we just made <laughs> up? Ooh. Mm-hmm. I think the fish that said Pittsburgh is the kind of like clever title they're doing like the late seventies. That yeah. kind of metaphorical it, It's not a clever title though. <laughs> if I'd made it up, I would be saying it's a very clever title. Oh, you see, I, w- I was all for the fish, but I'm now veering towards I'm um, wrestling for Jesus. Oh, God, sorry. <laughs> I'm wrestling rabbi. Yeah. Do we believe the boxing kangaroo? No, I'm going for Matilda. Kangaroo. Uh, third one. I'm going to go for, what was the third one called? The right arm of God. I'm going to go for the right arm of God, but it's close between that and the second one i've seen the boxing kangaroo <laughs> film it, it is a real thing oh shit <laughs> oh. Would, would you like to change your guess can i why not it could be a fish trap. thing fish thing <laughs> sticking with the kangaroo john might be misremembering oh fuck well i, I imagined a film about a boxing kangaroo quite the, possibly this is like- and then andy Simultaneously also imagined a film about a boxing kangaroo. Quite possible. This is exactly how the traitors ended on Friday. <laughs> All these, like, mind games. Oh, oh, God. Kangaroo movie. No, that's real. John Cena. <laughs> John thinks he's seen it. doesn't make it real. Well, it still is real with a, a mighty score of 3.6 out of 10 on IMDb. Damn it. Um, and also real is The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. I okay. made up the arm wrestling rabbi film. Well done. Yay. <laughs> Peter wins. <laughs> Go on, Peter. My buff or bluffs are about locations where things were filmed. Number one, Tim Burton's Batman was shot at St. Trinian's. A fictional school. Yeah, obviously right. slightly misleading. Both movies use Nebworth House as a main location. 
So Centurions is filmed at the same place as they filmed Bruce Wayne's Manor. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, number two. The original Centurions are the, the new ones. New ones. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll double check that and then edit out if I'm wrong. Um, which Batman? Uh, Tim Burton's. So doesn't it turn up in one of the late movies using a shot from the Tim Burton movies? Maybe. That might be The Flash. Maybe The Flash, yeah. Number two. In Buffy, Spike and Drusilla shared Harrison Ford's house from Blade Runner. When he was in it. Again, I'm talking locations here. Yep. So that means they filmed both things in the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The third one is that a 1973 movie was shot in Crystal Palace Park using their life-size fiberglass model dinosaurs. What was the movie? The movie was called Another World Lies Beneath, about a team of adventurers exploring inside the Earth. The fiberglass models are still there. I think. Exploring inside the Earth. Yeah. Um, has anyone been to Crystal Palace Park? Because I think you can see the sky there. Yeah. But there was a whole series <laughs> of these movies where they went inside the Earth. So mm-hmm. this is the third one. <clears throat> this, um, they were based on Edgar Rice Burroughs' Hollow Earth novels. I, I like uh, it. Set in the Victorian era. They had Doug McClure and Peter Cushing. The first one was The Land That Time Forgot. And the second one was At the Earth's Core. And this was the third, but they started running out of money a bit by then. Yeah, the one that time forgot is certainly a real film. It was really the Godzilla X Kong, the new empire of its day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dan, as our dinosaur expert, have you seen this one? I have not seen it, but I know of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. Yeah, there's definitely oh, okay. dinosaurs they, at they Crystal are Palace. Are they still yeah. there? I think so, but I'm not sure whether they've been replaced or restored. I would think so. I think I've, I've after the amount of time they've been there. They're um, not great. Yeah, they're, they're more there now as a kind of historic monument to what people used to think dinosaurs looked like. They're not furry for a start. They're not. Or feathered. No. The movie also had battles with giant insects, which just used back screen projection and real insects. Mm. Right, so it's between the first two. Uh, Batman and St. Trinity's Nebworth House, nice big stately uh-huh. home, could be used for that sort of thing. Different house to Wayne Manor in the Christopher Nolan films, which I think is in Nottinghamshire. Right, in Batman Begins. Well, it used to be. I mean, it burned down, didn't it? It did, yeah. did a bit. True. In a big fancy penthouse in the second one. It was. Yeah. Needed mm. the insurance money. Well, the second one, uh, the Buffy mm-hmm. one, Spike and Drusilla, they occupy a kind of basementy crypt place. Yeah. Um, yeah. They move into a sort of mansion place at one point. Do they? Yes. Yeah, they do, because um, season two finale, it's all in the big mansion, because yeah. Angelus <laughs> moves in with them. Angelus. And then he keeps using that mansion afterwards. Yes. That's right. But in Blade Runner, Harrison Ford just lives in like a small flat. That's mm-hmm. what I was thinking. He's got quite, I seem to recall kind of low ceilings and quite mm-hmm. dark yeah. and not really lots of windows. It's called yeah. the Ennis House and was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in a distinctive mine influence style. Oh, of course. We all know Frank Lloyd Wright. He is quite a famous architect. Okay. I've never heard of any architect. <laughs> right. That's you, uh, Frank Lloyd, wrong. He's referenced in The Simpsons. That's why I've heard <laughs> It has fairly unique sort of tiles all through the house. And that design was borrowed for the Rocketeer, had its internal stuff that was shot in a studio, but was, all had the same sort of tiles to look like that house. Predator 2, Star Trek TNG used it as well, and the recent Westworld series. Spike and Drusilla's house, for all they were vampires, I do remember shots that m- m- kind of made a feature of the windows. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I just assumed that all of the Buffy interiors were sets apart from the school because of TV budgets. These may have yeah. been external shots. Okay. Blade Runner does also have just one shot at the outside of his flat. 
don't know. Mm. There's all sorts of extra facts that you weaved in for the mm-hmm. second two. Uh, the first one. Um, oh, here we go. It was also Carry On Henry was shot there. <laughs> and The Great Muppet Caper. And The King's Speech. And loads of TV from the 60s to present day. And it's the interior of Gotham Manor. It's definitely used for external shots in the Tim Burton movie. Might be leaning towards that one. I, I think that's the... Heard something yeah, else about um, that. I think the Buffy Harrison Ford Blade Runner one might be the bluff, just because... Although I guess you can dress things different ways and it might just be the fact that it's a building that's friendly to filmmakers and keep going back to it, but... Blade Runner was shot in LA where presumably Buffy was shot, so that kind of makes sense. I think I'm going to go for the first one. That Batman was shot at St. Trinian's. Mm-hmm. I'm going for number three, Crystal Palace Dinosaurs, because even for a low-budget film, I think there's not a huge amount you can do with completely static fiberglass dinosaurs in a motion picture. It was a challenge. So they <laughs> would do stuff like shots in the rain, and they would move the camera instead of the dinosaurs, and there's one bit where the adventurers like come across... The triceratops in the clearing, and then they run away through the forest, and they're just like followed by lots of trees falling over and stuff like that instead of actually animating the dinosaur. Methinks he doth protest too much. <laughs> Number three, sticking with it. Okay. The Crystal Palace dinosaurs definitely exist. They do. But that's not the bluff. The bluff is whether they're used in that film or not. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, well. Mm, that makes Locked it more in. challenging. Oh. It's all right, John. We've got all day. Yeah, let's go for that. Let's go for number three. <laughs> okay. And I'll do the second one just to cover our bases. So, yes, uh, Batman was shot at St. Trinian's. That shot with Batman in an inappropriate miniskirt and stockings. Was- <laughs> <laughs> right. Bike and Drusilla did share Harrison's Ford's house in Blade Runner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I made up the one entirely about the dinosaurs under the earth mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. I can read you like a book. <laughs> by Edgar Rice Burroughs <laughs> yeah Hazel what have you got bring us home Mrs Chandler <laughs> films with octopuses in them hey, oh, yes. hey. octopussy ex- <laughs> uh, that's a real one oh, I'm very excited for this <laughs> okay shush the octopus from, 19, <laughs> from 1937 two bumbling detectives are off duty one of whom's wife is about to give birth their car tyre blows out on the way to the hospital. Whilst changing the flat, a woman approaches them from the forest. She says her stepfather has been murdered in a lighthouse nearby. She also says that her stepfather invented a radium ray and was murdered for the ray. <laughs> she says the person who murdered him was the octopus. The octopus is known to be the head of a crime syndicate and there's a 50,000 bounty on that head. Is this a, a, a literal octopus or...? Well, let me get to the... <laughs> the two cops seeing a chance to ingratiate themselves with the new commissioner by getting the octopus and seemingly forgetting that one of their wives is in labour head for the White House. <laughs> there they encounter more suspicious characters, including the octopus, who appears to be an actual octopus. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay, well, buckle in. <laughs> Number two. The Legend of the Titanic, 1999. Ooh. In New York City, an old mouse named Connors <laughs> tells his grandchildren the supposedly true story of the Titanic. So we flash back April 1912. You did say mouse, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Connors was a young sailor mouse on the Titanic's maiden voyage. A young man. Because <laughs> that's a thing. A young mouse named Ronnie, who employed. 
He enjoys playing soccer, but friends Connors. A shark wearing a jail uniform named Mr. Ice is asked to arrange the destruction of the ship by Mal Travers, who is a greedy, selfish whaler who wears an eye patch. He's assisted by his butler, Jeffries. Jeffries asks the radio man to send an urgent wire from Maltravers to his whaling ships by telegraph, but the mice chew apart the wires to stop it being sent. Mr. Ice and his shark gang fool a giant octopus named Tentacles into heaving an iceberg to the surface of the ocean. The Titanic crashes into the iceberg, during which Maltravers and his entourage flee the ship in a lifeboat. In order to fix the telegraph wires, the mice enlist the help of a French mouse named Camembert. <laughs> who insists they tie the wires I to think Camembert is what you were eating <laughs> who insists they tie the wires to his moustache electrocuting him to death what? <laughs> suddenly several whales and dolphins arrive to help with a rescue while a guilt ridden but determined tentacles tries to hold the bow and stern together as they splitting apart and keep the ship on the surface for as long as possible everyone jumps off the Titanic into the sea and are saved by a whale once again, everyone on the ship has been saved. The Titanic finally sinks, taking tentacles with it and seemingly crushing him to death. No. <laughs> Back in modern day New York, Connors tells his grandchildren that whales are still being hunted and what they must do whatever they can to stop the whaling schemes at all costs. Because mice are famously <laughs> capable of stopping whalers. I mean, it's a good message. It is, yeah. Uh-huh. Number three. It's also more accurate historically than the James Cameron version. <laughs> Number three. Squids Inc. 1971. Deep in the remote town of Colby, Kansas, the most isolated place in the entire United States, lies a little known treatment centre called Squids Inc. Situated a few towns away, we meet Caitlin, a down on her luck 30 year old who's just received the worst news of her life. A rare disease means she's been given eight weeks to live. Distraught, she calls the One only member of her. <laughs> Distraught, she calls the only member of her family still alive. Her cousin Ramona, who's an octopus, to give her the news. <laughs> Ramona is unfazed, for she knows there's something that can save her: a trip to Squids Inc. Caitlin and Ramona are greeted by the Squids Inc. eccentric owner Edwin Smith, who explains his unique formulation of giant octopus vulgaris ink and whale vomit will cure her of her ailments. Once cured. Caitlin's world is suddenly turned around. She gets her dream job, her dream man, and an unexpected windfall. But she can't seem to shake a nagging feeling that will all be ripped away from her. She's also starting to feel a little unwell. And whatever happened to Ramona? She grew six (laughs) more legs and they turned into tentacles and she's an octopus now. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) So, number one, shush the octopus. Two, The Legend of the Titanic, and three, Squids Inc. Which one did I make up? Uh, Squids Inc. Is that some sort of uh, pun where it's I-N-C incorporated? Squids incorporated, or is it just the ink of a squid? Just the ink of a squid. It has um, remarkable saving powers, Mm. I think. Whale vomit Um, is a thing, isn't it? Ambergris. Ambergris, yeah, is a a valuable... It's used in perfumes and stuff. Yeah, Yeah. cosmetics, yeah. It's a good job they renamed it, really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love Shush the Octopus so much, and Shush. I'm going to be so very disappointed if it isn't real. Mm. I really want to watch that. How is Shush spelled? S H. Mm. So it's just. Could <laughs> have been called Octopus. <laughs> I think the Titanic one is just so batshit, it's got to be real. Yeah, I think that if you'd made up the Titanic one. You might have gone with uh, a more outlandish name for the giant octopus than tentacles. 
gigantic. A hazel is famously obsessed with Titanic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mice. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the Very tit- old mice. The, the Titanic yeah, one yeah. Is, is live action, of course. It's, <laughs> it's an animated film. Mm, I mean, that mouse m- uh. lived two years, maybe, not a hundred. About three. It didn't say how many generations there are. No, it was the same mouse, wasn't it? His grandchildren. No. Was it was his, his grandchildren. Yeah, so, but he was telling the story to his... So it's a hundred-year-old yeah. mouse. Yeah. Telling a story to his grandchildren mice to illustrate the importance of... Yeah. Yeah, they've got they've Wales. got to be able to live longer than two years in order to get the necessary nautical training to serve on board a ship. Yeah, <laughs> and also if he'd accurately had the right number of grades, that would be the entire dialogue for the movie. He'd just be saying <laughs> great, 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 great. <laughs> That's got to be real. Um, I, I I think the last one is made up. Maybe I'm veering towards the last one being the made up one. I'm going with Shh, the octopus. No. Because it makes Andy so happy, I think Hazel mm. made it up just to make him <sighs> ah. happy. Oh. But if it's not real, I'll be sad. I'm going for the third one. Oh, I'm going to go for Shush the octopus. I want it to be real, but if it turns out to be fake, then I will be slightly consoled by the fact that I've got the quiz right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Legend of the Titanic is real. Yay. It is famously awful. Uh, about what? Really? Three point four something on uh, uh, IMDb. The Richter scale. Yeah, yeah. The the plot on Wikipedia didn't make any sense, so I did have to do quite a lot of research to try and piece the plot together. That was so. after making it make sense. Yeah. Shush the octopus is real. Yes. 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 Apparently, it contains one of the best plot twists of all time. I haven't. I haven't. Didn't say it. So you must now go away and watch it okay. and find out who is actually the octopus. <laughs> the octopus is really a shark. <laughs> Does the uh, woman in the car give birth to an octopus? Do you want to know what happens? Yes, spoilers. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so... No, I'm, I'm going to watch this. Wait, tell you I'll take the headphones off. Because no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's how sound works. Yeah. Don't so you know how I said there were two detectives at the start? Yeah. Um, one of them is a little bit surprised that his wife's in labour because the one who's the father is the other detective he has been doing his wife. Oh, oh thank you. Okay. Uh, but that's not the big plot twist, it's just an extra one. <gasps> oh, yeah. I made up Squid Inc. Started with that idea and it just unravelled. I like it. <laughs> I mean, that needs making as well. Yeah. I wonder if, if we go back through our 150 episodes, we've had many, many fake films we've made up. At least one of them must have appeared on Amazon Prime by now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find out where I can watch The Octopus. Not found don't, it yet. Don't try too hard. 1937. <laughs> Might be on YouTube. Based on a play, which is based on a spoof film, apparently. It says, adapted from The Gorilla. The Gorilla, yeah. Is a play. Yeah. Gorilla in it as well. <laughs> Sold. Okay, so now it's time to bring back an old favourite, Nerd Court. This is when two of our nerds disagree, vehemently disagree about a film, and the only way to solve their issues is to bring it all to Nerd Court. So I'm going to hand over to Judge John to start the proceedings. Silence in court. We are here today to put in the dock the film Spider-Man No Way Home. Multiverse magic or multiverse shite? (laughs) Our jurors, 
Hazel and Peter will decide. But first I would like to introduce you to, for the prosecution of Spider-Man No Way Home, Daniel Watkins. Good Lordship. And for the defence of this excellent film... <laughs> <laughs> no lies whatsoever. Andy Chandler. Thank you, Your Honour. Nice wig. Thank you. I knitted it myself. <laughs> I would like to begin with the uh, prosecution, uh, Mr. Watkins. Do we need to take an oath first, Your Honour? Uh, I would like to you to put your hand on this copy of The Amazing Spider-Man Number One. <laughs> yep. And repeat after me. I, Daniel Watkins. I, Daniel Watkins. Do promise to prosecute this film. Do promise to prosecute this film. In a fair and unbiased manner. In a fair and unbiased manner. And to accept the decision of the court. And to accept the decision of the court. So help me, sheep boy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mr. Chandler, if you could put your hand on this copy of. Uh, Venom, let there be carnage. Venom, let there be carnage. <laughs> oh, can I put a glove on? <laughs> And repeat after me. And repeat after me. I, Andy Chandler. I, Andy Chandler. Promise to be positive and cheerful. <laughs> promise to attempt to be positive and cheerful-ish. No matter how difficult that may be. No matter how difficult, nay, impossible that may be. For the rest of your life. <laughs> For as long as I can. A. Stanley. A. Stanley. Instead of Amen. Um. <laughs> Mr. Watkins, you may begin, please. What is your first piece of evidence? Judge John... I've declared myself four-person of the jury. Yeah, you're four-person. I thought there was only one of you. There's two of us. We've introduced a slightly new format this time to oh. stop these two waffling on. <laughs> Explain. So. I thought I was the judge. <laughs> Am I not in charge anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's three pieces of evidence yeah. that the prosecution going to bring. They only have 60 seconds now to either put forward their case or defend it. Okay, so, so, they're on so, the cloud. so, so Dan will give his p- evidence that is 60 seconds. Does Andy get to rebut that? He gets to rebut it in 60 seconds or less. Should John read the charge? And I'll let Dan read I the charge. I include the wording of the charge within my 60 seconds. We took that to be its own thing. That's fine. No, you need to speak 2% quicker. (laughs) 2% quicker. Okay. Um, So I would like like to make it known to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury that the Defence Council has been provided with all three charges prior to this session of court. How fair of you. That's very kind. Have have you done the same for Mr Watkins? I'm not charging the film. He's defending. You're defending the film. Yes. Uh, So do you not get to put more evidence in defence? Well, it's just the charges. I see. Okay. Yes. You're not a real have you, lawyer, have you right? been to court? <laughs> I mean, it's not like the defence say, oh, but I didn't steal a car. No, I mean, <laughs> it's not how it works. I didn't now, steal a car. <laughs> you wouldn't steal a handbag. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why I'm nodding on the <laughs> podcast. Yeah, so... Read your the, charges. We are both aware of the charges. We are not aware of each other's evidence for those charges. Okay, I, I, I understand. So, first charge, my lord. Uh, that you, Spider-Man No Way Home, did on various occasions knowingly and willingly sacrifice plot, character, and emotional resonance for blatant fan service and nostalgia, and place more importance on an immediate reaction of hooting and hollering than on anything more meaningful. <gasps> I should now present my evidence. Ladies and gentlemen, Spider-Man Homecoming took Spider-Man away from the grip of underwhelming Sony films and re-established him as a friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man, just trying to do his best. Spider-Man Far From Home treated Spider-Man with layered character development and understandable stakes. What could be better? 
I know, some guys from some thing you know. <laughs> Spider-Man No Way Home throws character and stakes through a portal, undoing the previous film's good work for the sake of empty, hollow fan service from movies completely unrelated to the MCU and our Spider-Man. And the story becomes nothing more than an excuse for getting audiences to do a cheer when someone they remember appears. It's unearned, it means nothing in the context of this series, and it's seconds. performative, with audiences hooting and hollering only because they know this is the bit where they're supposed to. If the court will permit, I will show the ladies and gentlemen a picture of, a, of the thing they, they liked 15 years ago. By No Way Home's <laughs> own logic, this means my argument must be the best. Five seconds left. Do you have a, a response? No, I'm all right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, go he's, on he's got a point. Oh, does he? Only time will tell. Shall we begin? I've already begun. Can we begin again? <laughs> <laughs> Objection. Okay. <laughs> okay. A sad insight into the defendant's home life. <laughs> <laughs> the, oh look, it's Thingy from that other film, effect is the currency Marvel trades in and a cornerstone of the MCU. Like any cinematic device, it can be done badly, i.e., oh, it's the Millennium Falcon for some reason. Or it can be done well. To be done well, Objection. it must be justified. Objection, that's not Marvel. <laughs> Doesn't have to be. Just talking about cinema in general. To be done well, it must be justified by the plot and serve some actual purpose in the story. The defendant meets both of these criteria. The presence of the extra textual characters is clearly explained by the magic spell gone awry. In fact, they are the main plot of the film. It's a film with wizards in it. It's normal. Um, and they enable the moral conflict at the heart of the story, that being seconds. responsibility versus desire. Spider-Man wrestles with helping the displaced villains versus sending them back to their fates. The Green Goblin exemplifies the position that great power means you can do whatever you want and have it all. The extra Spider-Men are Peter's moral guides. Take these out and there's no film left. They are essential pieces of the puzzle, not hollow fan service. Interesting. I interesting on both sides. I, mean, I have to say, I'm, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be no film if they take them out it would be a different film and a You'd have to put, film I mean it would go I, on for five minutes I, are you suggesting that the writers will, would be incapable of writing extra scenes to replace the ones that they would have to take out and they would just have released a five minute film to the cinemas I like it when the judge cross examines <laughs> <laughs> objection <laughs> as four person of the jury can I suggest we move along yes I, I just want to make clear what the defendant was stating. Thanks for doing that for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were quite clear. The, the, honor, the honourable gentleman on my left. I did too. So, uh, the, the second charge, your lordship, uh, that in reacting to the volume of aforesaid Hooten and Holleran, you, Spider-Man No Way Home, did cause Marvel to go all in on the concept of multiverses on the assumption that that guy from that thing you remember equals box office dollars contributing to the diminishing quality of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe thereafter. <gasps> My evidence. The Infinity Saga was always going to be difficult to replicate. A unique, interconnected series of films with characters we'd got to know across multiple installments. Heroes who we wanted to beat the bad guys and who we worried for when they were in danger. The Multiverse Saga is not that. It's a collection of unconnected CGI fests where nothing really matters because it's the multiverse and who cares what happens to anyone when we might get a cameo from an X-Man or an actor might show up as some guy. This has led the MCU to become something it's really hard to care about, and they seem unwilling to course correct from their failed multiverse concept. Spider-Man No Way Home is a major contributor to this situation. Without its hooting and hollering at portals, applauding side characters from decades-old sequels, and big box office anomaly, we might have been spared Quantumania, Loki Season 2, and Jennifer Garner cameoing as Elektra in Deadpool 3 because that's what people want, apparently. Ten seconds. Thanks, No Way Home. 
Uh, may, may I question on one point yes. here? Um, so you, you mentioned the Infinity Saga as the, the highlight. In the final film of that saga, when many <laughs> characters you remembered from previous films appeared through portals, <laughs> did you at any point hoot and holler? They are uh, integral parts of the saga, the overall story up to that point. They have not been drawn from uh, unrelated films made by a completely different studio some decades before. Okay. Thank you for but, the clarification. But, but also, wasn't that a little like Andy's point to the previous question? We'll bring this up in our jury deliberations. Yes. <laughs> Mr Chandler, your response, please. Thank you. Uh, Marvel has been toying with the idea of alternate dimensions since 2016's Doctor Strange, and it's well established that they plan their films out years in advance of production. The Marvel multiverse was in the cards long, long before Spider-Man No Way Home. Furthermore, please allow me to submit into evidence Exhibit A, Everything no. Everywhere All at Once, <laughs> and Exhibit B, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I'm sure, my learned colleague, I'm sure my learned colleague will acknowledge that multiverse ideas can work in films. They just didn't hear. The MCU's <laughs> recent issue, therefore, has been one of quality, <laughs> not ideology. Perhaps in an alternate reality, the Marvel multiverse is really good. But the defendant can only be responsible for its own quality. It is no more to blame for the alleged poor standard of its successors than Empire Strikes Back is for the existence of Jar Jar fucking Binks. Good point. Well made. Thank you. Objection. He keeps bringing Star Wars into this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've done some research and um, I understand that uh, both the Star Wars is... (laughs) And the, the the superheroes fall under the umbrella of the Disney Corporation. May I point out to Your Honour that Jar Jar Binks was created prior to that acquisition, as were the unrelated Spider-Man films that I am prosecuting. Hmm, I'll take that into consideration and ignore it. <laughs> Your final glad, charge. Glad you're, you're remaining fair and unbiased. Um, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, <laughs> I so, like seeing three Spider-Men. Um, <laughs> I did a hoot and a holler. Sorry. Um, well, if I may proceed, Your Honour, uh, to the third and final charge. Uh, that by your use of characters from previous movies made by Sony, you, Spider-Man No Way Home, did encourage the continuation and expansion of the Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters, and did actively allow said universe to be directly connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe through post credit scenes. Objection. I don't understand what you just said. Um, <laughs> Spider-Man No Way Home means we're getting more spunk. Oh, got it. You mean, mm. so we're getting rid of free, we're getting Craven the Hunter. You're, you're blaming all of these tsunamis of shite on the basis that we like Spider-Man No Way Home. Spider-Man No Way Home encouraged the continuation and expansion of these films. I see. Right. Please continue. The court will recognise that Morbius was largely filmed by the time No Way Home was released, and its quality is largely Jared Leto's fault. <coughs> but it's also beyond doubt that No Way Home led Morbius to tie itself explicitly to the MCU through two nonsensical post-credit scenes. Morbius is part of this whole thing now. And the ladies and gentlemen should not forget that No Way Home's own mid-credit scene starred Tom Hardy as Venom. So he's part of the MCU now too. It's all connected, and that's not a good thing, and it's all No Way Home's fault. And what lesson did Sony take from No Way Home? It's not the right one. It's that people just love seeing Spider-Man characters. Did you hear all that hooting and hollering? Have a Craven. Have a Madame Web. That man who was in the Amazon with my mum when she was researching spiders right before she died, he's also part of this now, and that too is No Way Home's fault. The MCU once rescued Spider-Man, but with No Way Home, they damned him, and also the ending's rubbish. Oh, yeah, I expected a bit more on the ending because I know how much it annoyed you at the time. Not one of the charges, uh, Your Honour. It uh, <laughs> was irrelevant to uh, the indictments ah, here I see. stated. Your response? 
Sony Pictures has owned the film rights to Spider-Man and associated characters since 1998 and will retain them so long as they release one new film every five years and nine months. They will continue to do this forever because Spider-Man is their most valuable property. Why do you look and sound like you're reading out a hostage <laughs> statement? <laughs> Irrelevant to the case. Of Sony's 16 highest grossing films of all time, 10 are Spider films. Money wow. talks louder than the Sandman popping up in the MCU ever could. Um, to your second point, Tom Hardy's Venom only existed in the MCU long enough to have a few drinks and a post-credits chat with what's-his-name from Ted Lasso before being magicked back to his own sad little world. Objection, symbiote was left behind. Tom Hardy wasn't. Canonically, he only exists in an alternate reality and is no more present in the mainstream Marvel world than James Bond or the Smurfs. Don't worry, we're not going to see Captain America fight Morbius anytime soon. Because he's 90. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree with the learned gentleman that Captain America is indeed 90 and therefore will be unlikely to fight Morbius. Oh, and also the ending's really good and fits in with the whole moral thing about responsibility versus desire, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you have heard the evidence. Or, well, one of the jury members is on his phone distracted, so I don't know if they did. (laughs) (laughs) I am, I was making notes. And I was paying attention to the clock, so he wasn't really paying attention to you. (laughs) Okay, so the jury have paid little to no attention to the arguments. Um, I would like you, um, let's have a little little bit of a jury discussion between you and and Mm -hmm. see what you think. Yeah, so one of the main arguments was how it was for a fan service and the introduction of old Spider-Men was just... Yes. Question, um, are we in the jury room? No. Okay. <laughs> are we outside the jury room with our ears pressed up to the door? <laughs> One of you we, is. We, we are unable to interject to the jury discussion is what I'm establishing. Yes, you are yes. outside the room. That's fine. Yes, so one of the main arguments, of course, was about how um, the reintroduction of various Spider-Men from different incarnations of the films was purely fan service rather than integral to the films. So much that that occupied a good portion of each of the three things he said. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What he was doing was bringing in exciting moments from his previous comments in order to get a hoot and holler. (laughs) I think that might have been successfully rebutted um, uh-huh. by the defence in terms of those characters did play an integral part to the plot. And, and they added so much to the movie. Yeah. It didn't feel like it was done just because of that reason. It felt like, I think that's the reason a load of people love that movie. I think it was also nice with the, the previous characters that they came back in. And got the little outcome. Like Andrew Garfield got treated terribly in Amazing Spider-Man Two, and it was nice to yeah. let that have a arc and an ending. There's the judge in this room as well. Yeah, so great for Tom Holland's Spider-Man series for Andrew Garfield <laughs> to get his happy ending. Yeah, it was re- re- really good for that series. Why of- do you begrudge him a happy ending? I don't, but he could have prosecuting counsel yeah. that I can't hear from the jury. Room. Yeah, oh. um, <laughs> it was the point that the only reason the film exists is to do these silly moments. Bailiff, uh, sorry, yeah. you'll, you'll never get me. Remove this yeah. man. Um, whilst, sorry. Whilst I'm going purely on the evidence, uh, it is also my personal opinion that um, yeah, that it wasn't just fan service. Mm-hmm. The, the whole film it wouldn't have worked without them. Mm-hmm about the actual Spider-Man. Bailiff! But, but they didn't. They are it would have film. been five minutes long. Yeah. It would have been a different film. On the spunk side of things, I think I might lean more towards the prosecution on this one. Uh-huh. In that Spider-Man No Way Home kind of opened the door for more of these uh, movies. 
existing. <laughs> oh, this is the sort of yeah. Spider-Man extended universe However, thing. he did introduce some evidence of Madame Web, which no one has seen. So we have to disregard that one. It's not going to be good, is it? I'm excited <laughs> about it. But also doesn't Spider-Verse to some extent contradict that? Because that shows that some other Spider movies can be good. Yes. And extending the franchise Which was also at, the isn't automatically bad. Defense's point that other multiverse films show how you, how it can be done right. Yeah. I think it's a shame in a way that so many franchises all did it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Feels like everyone was trying to do multiverse things all at once. Yes. Which, which is almost lead, the title of the movie. Which did, yeah. And that may have overcome the prosecution to a certain extent that mm. you know, multiverse fatigue and I may have clouded his judgment. So I think there's valid points on either side. But I, I, I do think the defence made a compelling case for the integrity of the plot, yeah. which is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Judge John? So, um, I think it's time to... Do, do you have your words? Is Spider-Man No Way Home guilty or innocent? We're going to put forward a verdict of not guilty. Not guilty. Mm. And that means, unfortunately, Andy, you're sentenced to be... You are sentenced to have a lovely life because you won. Daniel, you are sentenced to be put on a catapult, fired through a portal to the alternate universe where the only Spider-Man films that, that exist are ones that feature Jared Letter. It's a bit harsh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's better than Secret Invasion anyway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Something we can all agree on. <laughs> I will, I will adjourn the court and let us all go and have a celebratory shifter of port in my office. <laughs> Thank you very much and well done to you. Very civil. Mm. Apart from, you know, the, the sentence. That was <laughs> yes. Cruel and unusual. <laughs> <laughs> That is all for today's episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've listened to all 150 episodes, all I can say is, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I mean, even I haven't listened to (laughs) it. We're not stopping, though, despite letters. So we'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, do give us a follow on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK. And you can also leave us a review, even if all you say in that review is, well, they try. John, what is this week's reward for any listener review? You will be sent a special hard drive containing the full unedited episodes of all 150 episodes. That's great. That's it. That's 5,812 hours of content. Oh, <laughs> Mainly because it's been going, John, no. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, you've been listening to... A man who will soon be back in nerd court defending Sheep Boy No Way Home. <laughs> <laughs> A man who doesn't want to see Batman in the Centrinian's outfit. A man who feels weird at having been so positive about a film. Poor things were shit. That's better. (laughs) (laughs) A man who can't wait to nerd court Andy on the brilliant poor things. (laughs) And a woman who's actually an octopus. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. We all knew. Mm, tentacles. The way you predicted the World Cup was <laughs> <laughs> surprisingly <laughs> impressive. And um, she got all imagined to get this podcast because she could escape from a jar. That reference is lost on me. I mean, you can put an octopus in a jar and it can mm-hmm. escape. Oh no, it can undo a jar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.